0: Welcome to Wealth Builders Real Estate Investing Podcast with your host, Marcus Kron. We interview experts so you can understand all aspects of real estate investing. Whether you're a passive investor or an experienced syndicator, this podcast can guide you on your journey of building wealth through real estate. If you want to get in touch with me directly to learn more about real estate or to see all of the available podcast episodes and show notes, visit my website, marcuscron.com. Hey guys, Marcus Kron here. Welcome to Wealth Builders Real Estate Investing Podcast. Today I'm joined by Robert Beardsley, who brings a wealth of knowledge in acquisitions and underwriting deals. So I'm excited to let him share his expertise today. So Robert, welcome to the show, man. Hey, thanks for having me. All right. Yeah, no problem at all. Um, Really appreciate you hopping on uh, to to share some uh, knowledge with my audience. So a little bit about Robert. Uh, Robert Beardsley oversees acquisitions and capital markets for Lone Star Capital and has identified, negotiated, and structured over $100 million of multifamily real estate transactions. He has evaluated thousands of opportunities, including proprietary underwriting models. He has a popular newsletter read by hundreds of real estate professionals and has published over 50 articles about underwriting, deal structures, and capital markets. Robert also helps run Green Oaks Capital, his family's real estate investment and advisory firm. All right, so that's, uh, you know, it sounds like you got quite a bit bit of experience in underwriting and then, you know, even come up with some of your own uh, proprietary underwriting models. But uh, before we kind of dig into things here, Rob, um, I'll let you tell a little bit more about yourself.
1: Yeah, sure, and it's always good to hear a a nice intro about myself that I wrote, so um, (laughs) that feels good. But um, yeah, no. Thanks for having me on the show. And uh, like you said, definitely my experience is focused on the analytics side. Uh, what you know, evaluating a project from the ground up, and then layering in different structures of the deal on the, the debt and equity as well as the partnership side of things. So all that kind of stuff is is really fascinating to me, like a puzzle. I always think there's unique ways to create value uh, rather than just you know win lose or. You know, lose lose, win win. You know, there's always a unique way to to look at something and, and create the most value. So that's something I'm always interested in and and looking to do. So um, I grew up in a real estate family, so real estate was on my mind from an early age, and um, got to see my parents both being involved in real estate. And uh, you know, not too long ago, my family all together we got into multifamily. We we're more so on on the single family development and and sales and things like that. And, uh, you know, multifamily opened up the door to a lot of new relationships and a lot of new opportunities, um, where I was able to learn quickly from mentors and and other people in the business. And I was very fortunate to uh, actually meet my business partner along the way. And uh, together we formed Lone Star Capital, which is now uh, my main focus, which is uh, finding, acquiring, and managing um,
0: multifamily opportunities,
1: primarily in Texas.
0: Awesome, awesome. So it sounds like you grew up with uh, real estate in your blood. Um, Was there like a a point in time, or you know, was it was it the fact that you were basically, hey, I knew I was going to go into real estate all along, or was it kind of, hey, you know, felt it out and you kind of got really hooked on it at a point in time, or you kind of tell me, you know, what what made you make that leap or go into, you know, follow the family into into real estate? Um, You know, could, could you talk a little bit about that?
1: Absolutely. Yeah, it's actually not at all. Happened that way. Uh, growing up in Silicon Valley, there was you know pretty much everybody, everybody's parents went to uh, Stanford nearby or you know Harvard. Everyone just had such great uh, pedigrees and backgrounds and focused on tech. And everybody, you know, the, the number one thing to do was uh, you know start a startup and and you know be a unicorn and you know sell, uh, you know go public or get acquired. And so that was kind of where I was being pushed just more so due to my, you know, where I was brought up and and the zeitgeist. So I really, you know, I went to school for computer science and information systems and I was involved in in technology type stuff. And that's kind of having that brain of, you know, solving formulas and building algorithms and things like that is, you know, translated nicely and something I really enjoy. Uh, But it really wasn't a direct path from, you know, you know, real estate family to real estate, but uh, what ended up happening is I just over time being interested in investing as a general principle, uh, you know, you kind of look at the stock market and that's kind of a, especially right now, if you look at it, it's a crazy place. So, uh, you know, it kind of naturally ended up coming back full circle back to real estate after evaluating all the, you know, the whole investing universe.
0: Right, right. No, that's awesome. So um, no, um, I appreciate you sharing a little bit about your background and how, how you ended up where you are today and uh, leading to your founding of your, your group, Lone Star Capital. But what I really want to dig in today is, um, you know, you've got a lot of expertise in, in structuring deals and in, in, in underwriting. So I really want to dig into that today. So um, could you talk just to start off here? Could you talk about some of the typical fees that should be expected in a, in a, in a syndication deal?
1: Sure. Absolutely. So and you brought up syndication deal, which is, you know, very specific type of deal. Obviously, you might be buying a multifamily property, but there's a a million ways to buy it. Right. You could buy it with all your own capital. You could be a limited partner with many limited partners in a large syndication. You could do a joint venture where maybe it's you're the capital partner and then the sponsor or partner is the person on the ground doing the deal. Um, and that's really just a much smaller partnership. And so, or, or there's a fund vehicle. So, you know, when we're talking about specifically syndications, um, we're usually seeing, uh, an acquisition fee paid up front at closing, which is typically based on how large the deal is either purchase price or total capitalization, which would be purchase price, closing costs, capital expenditures. And, um, and that's typically one to 2%. And, um, you know but wait there's more you have at closing often you see a loan guarantee fee which would be based on the loan amount which makes sense uh, you know typically a even on a non recourse deal a sponsor is going to need to provide their balance sheet and their experience and they'll have to sign um, non recourse bad boy carve outs and sometimes more um, actually personal guarantees depending on the loan but you know so that requires having Worth ample liquidity, experience, reputation with the lender, so sponsors feel they can charge, you know, a separate fee for for providing that to the deal and taking on a little bit personal risk. So that's typically, I'd say, half a percent to one percent of the loan balance, and that's you know, mostly it ends there on on fees at closing. But you know, there's also maybe a due diligence fee where, uh, especially you see for sponsors that are vertically integrated where they're running the whole operation down to the leasing agents on site to the you know in-house construction and things like that you know it's expensive to have your team drive or fly out to a site and perform a two-day full unit walk it's, it's you know many people to walk all the units and perform a lease audit and, and there's also technology involved so there could be fees there as well so uh, it's not uncommon to see a due diligence fee so those would be the fees that, up front and then to try to wrap this up, you've got typically property management and asset management fees on an ongoing basis based on revenue and property management fees are three to 4% on a larger multifamily deal. And this may not sponsor. So if the sponsor is hiring a third-party management company, you know, boots on the ground, that'll be going directly to the property management company. And then the asset management fee would be going to the sponsor, which is one to 2%. So, And then you've got less common, you've got disposition fees, which would be a percentage of the sale. So five years down the road, you sell the property for $20 million. There could be a 1% dispo fee. Um, And there's also refinance fees. So if there's a a refi event during the whole period, there would be a fee there. So fees, 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 um, you know, not, you know, there's many different types of structures where you may want to be fee heavy but then more favorable on the performance or want to be really light on the on the fees and say hey you know i want to perform which they can incentivize them differently and, and can resonate with different investors
0: yeah so it, got, it really comes down to aligning with investors i mean investors aren't going to want to see hey fee stacked on fee stacked on fee they want to see that it's it's aligns Know it's in the best interest for that operator to perform well and get really get really get paid on the back end instead of just collecting fees up front along the way. Um, So what are you seeing typically in deals these days, which is like an industry standard where hey, these are the fees that you know most most sponsors are charging, where it's not kind of like overwhelming. I know I I know I've seen. Well, I'll let you talk about it here.
1: No, so you you brought up a good point about the alignment of interest and incentives and. You know fees aren't necessarily bad because, for example, let's just say a refi fee, you know, there's an incentive for the sponsor to refi, which rather than sell. Um, and there's inherent built into all these structures, there's almost always a bias towards selling because that's like you said, make your money on the back end. And so a sponsor is going to want to sell. But if I'm a longer-term holder and you know, you, as an investor, you may say, Hey, I like the conservative nature from hold in a quality location you know that may not happen if the sponsor is incentivized to exit early so if you can find a structure that works for you and the sponsor that uh, maybe gives them a little more incentive to stay in longer maybe better ongoing fees or a participation in the profits on an ongoing basis um, and things like that that can align your investment thesis with um, you know the fee structure and all that so but to, like you said, for just a clean example, I would say most commonly seen in a syndicated deal would be a two percent acquisition fee, three um, percent property management fee, whether it's in-sourced or outsourced, two percent asset management fee. So we're looking at a five percent all-in management fee, and then an eight percent preferred return, um, which are going to be seven on some higher quality deals or, or you know better sponsors, and then in an it's kind of all over the board, 20% to 30% on the promote, um, and then actually something we've been seeing more of lately is a tier two hurdle, which would be the promote increases over a certain performance threshold. So let's say the deal after sale uh, hits a 15 or 20% IRR hurdle, the promote will actually kick into a higher level. Let's say going from 30 to 40 or 30 to 50. Um, and really juice the sponsors returns, which uh, some investors may like and some some may not.
0: Right, right. So you, you brought up a, a, a lot there that I wanted to lead into and and kind of let uh, let you untangle that if, if if some of the listeners don't really understand all the terminology there. but uh, my next question is, hey, explain you know the preferred return. What is it? How does it work? I know you already mentioned what what's average there about we're seeing eight percent preferred return is kind of uh, standard these days. Um, but, uh, you know, talk a little bit about preferred return, how it works and, uh, share that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Great question. Because it would be so easy to not even think that that would be hard to define. Right. But a preferred return actually has many different uh, iterations and you can structure it any way you want. So it's really important as an investor to fully understand what you're getting yourself into and, uh, you know, read the PPM. I, uh, i was listening to another podcast where the, you know they're kind of joking they're saying how do you ppm and it's, they're saying you know basically do you you know wake up early on a saturday and get a coffee and you know sit there for four hours and read the ppm because nobody looks forward to really reading those things they're they're brutal legal documents but really important to at least read one from start to finish once in your life um you know maybe you never have to do it again but I was actually reading one just last night, just kind of absorbing and seeing about different wrinkles and how are other people doing deals and things like that. So um, yeah, the detail is important. So on the preferred return, uh, taking a step back, the the purpose of a preferred return is really to give a protect, be a protection mechanism for investors uh, to help ensure that they're going to meet a minimum return threshold uh, and yet still allow the sponsor to be compensated if they do perform and, and and you know hit a hit a double or even knock it out of the park. So so the preferred return let's say at 8% is a senior payment made out of the cash flows as well as uh, you know a refire sale and that those those senior payments are due to the investor first. So if a property is performing and kicking out a certain percentage of cash flow, that first 8% is due investor before the sponsor can receive any of their profits now this um, if the sponsor is also investing their own money into the LP then they'll also be participating in the preferred return so there are structures where the GP has a capital account let's say the GP is investing 10% of the equity it'll be both the GP and the LP's money will receive an eight together so if it's six, they're both just getting six, no difference. If it's eight, they both hit eight. But if it's 10, you know, they can hit the eight. And then now the sponsor will get a little bit more. They'll get a disproportionate amount of the share of the remaining profits. So, and, and as you can see intuitively, that's a, that's a protection because if it's not eight, if it's less, then it's all going to the investors. And the one wrinkle that I want to bring up is the fact of whether or not being a preferred return based on uh, cash flows, or if it's a total return, an IRR based hurdle, because there are some hurdles that entitle the sponsor to uh, receiving a portion of the cash flows on an ongoing basis. And then there are others where the sponsor makes no money from the the profits of the deal to the investors have received 100% of their money back and their preferred return and then the sponsor makes money. So that's a huge protection mechanism for an investor. So, um, you know, in my opinion, depending on the deal, that could be very attractive for an investor because it's such a easy thing for an investor to understand to say, wait, the sponsor isn't going to make any money until I've gotten all my money back. So I've de-risked the deal for myself and I've received a minimum return of, of you know, let's say seven or eight percent, which is pretty competitive. So that is, um, you know, I I like that pitch, but if you look at it, we're talking about incentive to sell early. Think about it. If I'm a sponsor and I'm making nothing on the promote until sale, I mean, you're going to, it'll be hard to convince me not to sell.
0: Right, right, right. And, uh, right there, you just mentioned promote. So I want to dig into that next. That usually shows up on the back end when we're talking, talking about, you know, sale and how the, uh, the GP gets compensated when they actually manage a deal well, they make a profit, and then some people even call it a profit split. Um, Some people call it a carried interest. Could you kind of unpack that and and tell what that really is, define it, and how um, you've seen it structured in, in typical deals these days?
1: Yeah, so like you said, there's a couple names for it, the profit split, promote, carry, carried interest. So it really, the most classic definition of it is whereby the service provider or the service partner or is able to receive a disproportionate share of the profits um that's why you know profit split and so um and going back to the pref it, it's very closely connected to the pref because it's hard to talk about promote without prep although you, you you do see some deals without a pref, which in almost all cases is a very uncompetitive structure um, it, you know you almost never see There is no pref involved that is actually on a net basis uh, not more expensive. So if you see that, typically it's an expensive deal for an investor to go into. But if you're an investor looking at long term, you might say, Hey, I like the idea that the sponsor is getting a percentage of the profits, you know, right from zero percent cash flow and on, because they've got a lot of incentive to just stay in the deal and keep performing it. So, you know, dollar for dollar for every dollar the investor makes, the sponsor is getting. piece of that as well so you know for the longer term that may make sense but going to the promote side like we talked about uh, assuming there is a pref once the pref has been met whether it's been met on a ongoing basis and you're and you're hitting eight percent on the cash on cash and there's actually x the sponsor can get let's say 20 to 30 percent of those remaining cash flows so the the quick easiest math to do would be a deal where it's an 8% preferred return and a 25% promote, and the deal is kicking out 10% cash on cash, and that would be and, and for, for someone who doesn't know cash on cash, that would simply be you're making 10% on your money. So let's just say a million dollars, and the deal is kicking out 100,000. So the first 8% of that 100,000 or 80,000 would go 100% to the investor to the LP then you've got the remaining $20,000 or 2% totaling the 10. Uh, and that 25% promote would take would be taken out of two. So to do the math, that's half a percent would go um, the GP. So in the end, that 10% out of that nine and a half would go to the investor and half would go to the GP. So, uh, you know, you can see when the prep is involved, you, if you think abstractly, well, 25% of the profit, that seems like a lot. But if it's subordinate to that PREF, they're actually taking a pretty small chunk out of that cash flow.
0: Right, right, right. No, that was a great explanation, and, and I'm glad you shared, shared that with uh, the listeners here. So um, the next thing you were mentioning was internal rate of return, or IRR, and an IRR hurdle. First of all, could you kind of define what is IRR, and, and what is an IRR hurdle?
1: Great. Yeah. You're just laying it up perfectly for me. Um, so IRR is a, is a tough one because it's so universally used, right? Every single deal is always slapping an IRR on itself and and pitched itself with an IRR. People just because they see it so often, they don't even think to wonder what it means or or really closely define it. But, um, you know, to start, I'll just give the, the textbook definition, which for most people make, no sense so it it almost adds no meaning but i'll just say the irr is the discount rate at which the net present value of the future cash flows equals zero so it doesn't make any sense but if you have a decent grasp of net present value um, that formula requires you having cash flows and and you know dates or years or time periods assigned to those cash flows and the goal is to then use a discount rate to discount those cash flows back to present day. So, you know, a dollar today is worth more than a dollar tomorrow. And there's many reasons for that. Um, number one, you know, I, I like money now. So there's, there's that opportunity cost and then obviously inflation. So money is worth more today just due to inflation. And, and also risk, you know, money in the future is more risky. Uh, I want my money now. So um, So that discount rate is it's an implied calculation, um, on the IRR. So if you basically say, Hey, this deal has a 15 IRR, 15% IRR, what that means is the deal is discounting future cash flows at 15%. So if you personally have a discount rate of, let's just say 10% because you have access to certain investments and someone says, Hey, I have a 15% IRR deal. And assuming that you're taking the same amount of risk as your typical discount rate allows you to, then that's a great deal for you because your discount rate's 10 percent and 15 is more. So um, you know that's kind of the application of it. But the more more um, intuitive understanding of IRR is, and that the way I like to explain it is, is it takes lumpy cash flows and it normalizes them because alternative investments are lumpy because you have a big cash outlay. And then maybe if it's a turnaround, there's no cash flows year one, then the cash flows build up, then maybe you refile and then you hang on for another couple of years and then maybe you sell finally and get your big pop. So there were, there were lumpy uneven cash flows there and it would be really difficult or inaccurate to put just an annual return and say, well, Oh, well, this year you made seven, this year you made 12. And then the next year you refi, you got 30. So let's average them out. So the the way that the IRR normalizes it is it basically converts it to what would this investment look like? What would these returns look like if they weren't lumpy and they were simply a bank account with an interest rate or any interest compounding interest bearing uh, product, which, you know, you th- think about just a, a bank account. Um, you know, you put hundred dollars in, it goes to 101 and then the 101 earns so your interest is earning interest. So um, that's the factor
0: of the IRR. Awesome, awesome. So I feel like you really broke down uh, deal structure great and kind of uh, gave a good, well-rounded, high level explanation of well, I mean, more than just high level, you kind of dug into those pretty deep, which I think is great. Now I kind of want to look at, you know if somebody's looking to structure their first deal. What structure is recommended for someone looking to do their first deal? And, and what structure should they be doing? I kind of, uh, I'm gonna lead you a little bit in this, but you know sometimes you hear about that beginner's discount where you might have to give up a little bit on the, the carried interest or the promote, or you, know, you might have to tweak a little things in the deal structure because you don't have that proven track record, so you need to give a little bit more to the investor. But um, could you kind of explain that a little bit more on how you've seen you know, first time uh, deal sponsors structure something that's gonna be attractive to their investors?
1: yeah I think you you nailed it right there and, and definitely explained it well about the beginner's discount and things like that. I think the simple answer is, if it's your first deal or you, or you, you want to structure it so that it's easiest for you, you, you want it to you want the structure to fly under the radar. you want it to be as similar to market as possible, and even a discount too much starts to look fishy It's that you know why are you so you know they might think something's wrong or you know you don't have confidence in yourself and and things like that so i would say a beginner's discount makes a lot of sense but not too much to you know in the end kind of draw too much attention you don't want the structure to draw attention to that so i would say just try to be as normal as possible to, to whatever your investors are typical typically seeing so what i recommend you know, whether you're a, a limited, part, limited partner, but also a, even if you're a sponsor is, uh, you know, join investor groups and, and get a, involved in these communities of investors that are always sharing opportunities with each other and providing feedback on them. Because, you know, you could just get it directly from the source. You've got a bunch of investors right there who are actively investing in deals and they can tell you exactly what they're looking for in a structure. You just say, you know, hey, if I were to put together a deal, what's your you know, by still being reasonable, what's your dream structure, um, you know, as an investor, assuming that investor is the avatar or the, the type of investor that you're trying to attract. So uh, the structure, if you're trying to attract is a private equity firm, it's going to be vastly different than if you're trying to attract a, uh, you know, a retail investor or, you know, less sophisticated. So um, yeah, I think you nailed it with the, the beginner's discount.
0: Yeah, no, And to your point there, where you don't want to be too far off of market. I've even heard of sometimes when they look for the profit split and they go say 90 to the LP and and 10 to the GP or even lower than that because they're just trying to convince the LPs to come in and be like, hey, this is a good deal for you. Get in on this. Where if there's not enough in it for the GP, that's going to be it's going to raise all types of questions. There's going to be skeptical LPs because they're going to look at it and say, well, you know, if this thing starts underperforming, this investment doesn't go well, what's in it for you, you're just basically going to walk away and there's no skin off your back. So I think it's a, it's a way to protect, I mean, stay close to market, but don't, you know, don't discount it too much. So um, yeah, no really good points there that you had uh, on that. So to kind of close off on, on first deal structure, like maybe you've already brought it up already, but what would be your best advice for someone looking to syndicate their first deal? Yeah,
1: so uh, yeah, like you said, if there's not enough, um, motive, you know, not enough motivation, then they could like just walk away or not really be motivated to work super hard for that uh, you know compensation at the end of the deal or or even during the deal. That's another i've I've seen you know sophisticated investors actually say i I like when a deal has an asset management fee because asset management fees are important to keeping the lights on and actually supporting an asset management infrastructure. So, uh, you know, jumping around a little bit as an investor, you'd want to know, okay, well, what are, what's the infrastructure behind this deal? You know, it, what's this fee going towards supporting? Is there, is there a team? Is there one guy who's managing this and he has a salary and things like that? So it, I think as a sponsor, if you just explain, if, if, if an investor asks, if, it, if you just explain, you know, this fee is going to cover our operation and it's going to allow us to scale and actually improve our ability to perform and deliver, I think, you know, that makes a lot of sense. But going to the the first deal, like you said, uh, you know, to be as close to market based on whichever investor archetype you're trying to, um, you know, and, but I would say a one to 2% acquisition fee again, 2% asset management fee an 8% preferred return and a probably 20% promote. I think if you show that, um, you know, you're still making as a sponsor good money. You know, you're getting a nice fee up front, and and you're getting ongoing revenue. But that 20% promote on the back end, I think, is is a nice. You know, again, you don't want to be kind of at risk of well, he has no you no know, in, uh, in incentive to perform. Uh, but I think that 20% definitely stands out in a good way. Uh, but the mo- most important thing that all of the structure is literal cash skin in the game. You know, no matter how good a structure is or, you know, appeals to an investor um, in terms of aligning interest, cash, 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 cash is way more powerful. So as a first time sponsor, I mean, you could have market fees and forget the beginner discount. If you're willing to put up, you know, 10, 20, 30 or percent more of the equity in the deal that will be the best thing you can do. Obviously, that may be more difficult if, again, you're a beginner and this is you know, earlier in your career, so it may not be an option. But if, if it is, and family, family money works. If you could say, hey, my, you know, my uncle who I fish with every weekend is putting a, you know, a big chunk, you know, he's my rich uncle, but he's putting a million dollars in, uh, that, that means a lot.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, because um, that's an awkward conversation when you're sitting at uh, Thanksgiving dinner with uh, your family member and they're like, they're asking you, hey, where's my money? What's, what's, what happened with that investment? So, I mean, there's having that, like you say, family money in a deal it can can sometimes be just as good or better than uh, the, owns the, uh, the, the money of the sponsor. Um, so, no, that's great. So, um, now I want to touch on a little bit into underwriting and you know, that process involves... Not only from the GP underwriting a deal, but also, um, you know, passive investor underwriting a deal, not just taking the GP's word at saying, hey, this is, these are the numbers, these are, these are these fantastic returns, you know, this is the IRR, this is, you know, the deal looks great, but, you know, there's a level of diligence that a passive investor needs to take. So, um, you know, involves in doing some underwriting. So what should a passive investor be doing to underwrite a deal?
1: Yeah, uh, interesting topic and, and tough because as a passive investor, you're thinking, Hey, I'm, I'm passive. I should be able to get to sit back and not worry about anything. I just make investments, get checks in the mail, but really there's nothing passive about being a passive investor. It it requires a ton of networking to, to meet and find the, you know, the best sponsors that you resonate with and, and build trust with. And, uh, and then obviously, like you said, evaluating and underwriting their deals. So, from that perspective, I highly recommend that passive investors do Underwrite the deal because I think the I mean it must be 1% or, or Something like that of passive investors that do underwrite the deal um, Obviously for you know people that do it more professionally or maybe they were in real estate And then they're retired and now they're investing passively those people are most likely underwriting Um, And obviously institutional investors that are still passive and like family offices and private equity groups, they're, they're underwriting, you know, everything. Uh, The level of due diligence they do is incredible. It's all, it's, it's more than, than we do. They're, they're climbing everywhere. So um, that helps sharpen me up just as an aside. That's I really appreciate when when we are really sophisticated groups and they just tear us up and, and, you know, we learn so much, but as as just a, a past investor, you should be able to do, you know, a quick preliminary underwriting and not to say that you, like you said, sponsors, they, they're doing the work for you, right? Why double the work? They're underwriting the deal. They, they know the market, all that. But so, you know, you don't have to throw all that information that they put together away. You just, you can use it, but you should still plug it into a model that you know, like, and trust and understand because The thing about a model, as everybody knows, they're black boxes and garbage in, garbage out. And it's really hard to know what, you know, how that model works. So, for example, you know, the way my model is built, it could be very different than someone else's. Just my different assumption. I think that your sale value should be based on your trailing 12 NOI, and that includes reserves. So other people say, well, I'm not going to use my trailing NOI. I'm going to use my forward NOI when I sell. So if I'm going to sell in year five, they actually use their year six NOI. And then maybe they tax adjust it because they're thinking about it from the future buyer's perspective. Um, you know, that's not neither right nor wrong. It's, it's just there's all these different ways. But what I could tell you is, and, and, and it's not like that's right in your face. Nobody's telling you right in their model that, hey, my model is built this way because it's all in the back. It's all in the formulas. And what I could tell you is I could change a couple ways of how I'm calculating my sale value. I could, I could change a couple of the ways that I'm, you know, playing with my, not not playing, but just, you know, accounting for my closing costs and and different reserves. And with keeping all the operating numbers exact same and the cap the same and the rent growth the same, I could get a 4% difference in IRR, maybe more. So that just shows, I mean, a 4% difference that could be, the different 12 and could be, uh, yes, I'm investing in that deal. And no, it's just, just not good enough. So you can't just accept those numbers and you have to work with your own model or whichever model that you choose to get comfortable with and, and start grooving it out and, and feeling, Hey, most deals that I'm underwriting through this model are coming in at, at 10 or 12. And, you know, maybe it's not actually a 12, maybe it's actually a 14, but it doesn't matter because you want to, understand what the typical returns are looking like so that way when when a deal stands out in your model whether standing out for you and your model is 15 or 18 or 22 it stands out
0: and what kind of uh in order to do this underwriting um i know you mentioned about kind of verifying their model and, and you know not taking it at face value but plugging it into your own model and kind of verifying numbers but you know what other information or due diligence materials do you really need to conduct that underwriting
1: yeah so it's it's not hard stuff to get you should if you're receiving a deal from a sponsor you can just ask for the rent roll and the t12 and also it's nice if it's an on-market deal which the vast majority of deals are on market there's somewhere out in the universe is a nice glossy offering memorandum that was put together by the brokers selling the deal so if you can if they're willing to share it they should be then you can get that and that'll have a its own version of underwriting right brokers who are selling a deal are also underwriting the deal that underwriting is typically known to be the most aggressive. So what you I mean, you never would want to see a sponsor that's putting a deal together to be as aggressive or more aggressive than the, the brokers underwriting who's selling the deal. Obviously they're selling the deal. So they they're trying to pitch it as a total home run. Um, so, but it's, it's still a good frame of reference to have. But without that, it's totally fine. If you just look at the T12 and the rent roll, that'll give you a good understanding of where property sits today. And, and in order to kind of better understand where its potential is, because most deals are bought based on the future potential and not just the in-place performance, you know, that requires a little bit more homework. Um, namely, rent comps, where, you know, if you don't have access to data services like Yardi Matrix and CoStar and things like that, uh, then you might just have to Google and go on Apartments.com and maybe I, you know call up different apartment complexes that are down the street or in the area. I spend you know a lot of time just calling up apartment complexes that are next door or down the street to potential acquisitions, and I just say, hey, I'm interested in a two-bedroom. What is that renting for today? You know, would you potentially give me a discount? I'm a good resident, or you know, uh, what kind of ancillary fees are there? You have to understand all the you know the nitty-gritties of of the rent comp that's really the most time-consuming.
0: Right, and uh, you brought up a topic there of being, well, talking about the offering, memorandum and talking about how brokers are going to be aggressive on the deals. Now, uh, let's go to the opposite side. Given where we're at in the market cycle, um, you're really wanting to make sure that the sponsor isn't overly aggressive, but making sure that it's stress-tested and you know there's a conservative deal that they can still hit their returns even if certain items don't quite pan out as they projected. So you know, what are certain things that they should be looking for or a passive investor looking for to check for the, um, how conservative a deal is?
1: Yeah. So, you know, the two classic most common ways that you can, the levers you can quickly pull to juice a deal and, and they are talked about a lot. So they're, they're kind of cliche at this point, but it's the, the rent growth, um, assumption and the exit cap rate. So, You know, people are getting pretty, you know, savvy to this. And so it's those those things are kind of out in plain sight. So it's pretty easy to spot if you see, hey, this guy's got four percent model. I mean, any deal would look good with four percent rent growth. And so, uh, you know, that's happening less, I I think. And same with the exit cap rate. People are looking well is your exit cap rate, uh, whatever their metric they think is good. Um, so, so those, but those still two metrics, nonetheless, are easy to tweak. You know, if you just take your exit cap rate from six and a half to six, um, or six to five and a half, that can do a whole lot to your numbers. So as a passive investor, if you were just going to spend five minutes on a deal, um, and I did this the other day, I was presented a deal, you know, nice, glossy pitch deck. And, you know, I didn't really want to go through the whole thing. So all I did was I took the year five NOI. I made sure that it included replacement reserves. And I I took the sponsor's numbers at face value. I just said, all right, year five NOI, I believe you. Made sure reserves were included. And then I divided it by my own exit cap rate, which for the location, it was, a, it was an okay location, older asset. So I used a 6% cap rate, which Cap rates are, are very local and they're always changing, so I can't just say a cap rate and then that's, that's the one you should use. But for this deal, I used a 6% cap rate, and I think I got to a you know, $24 million valuation. And the sponsor, in their projections, was projecting, I think, I don't know, it was, must have been closer to $30 million on the sale. So, and, he's, and I'm using his numbers. <laughs> So, uh, you know, the way he got to his sale must've been by using a forward and a Y, and then he was using, I think a five and a half cap or a five cap, and he didn't have reserves included. And, uh, you know, that's a huge difference, 24 million versus 30 million. So if you just look at the exit cap rate, that can be a big sign. And another point about that is if you, if you see these kind of, you know, when there's a judgment call of, well, should I use this number or should I use that number? and the assumption or number is used. And you kind of have to wonder, well, what does that say about the rest of the, the deal and assumptions and how this, you know, sponsor is looking at this opportunity?
0: Right. No, that's uh, really true. And I mean, I think the exit cap makes a, a big difference. It can really juice the returns. And, and it's a simple thing to, I mean, oh, it's, we're going to you know, sell it at the same, uh, the exit cap is going to be the exact same as what we, you know, our entry cap is. And we really want to, at this point in the cycle, be conservative in, in, in how we're underwriting deals. So um, I, I think I've heard somebody say, if if, some, if you see a sponsor projecting that they're going to sell it at the same entry cap, as uh, I mean, you know the exit cap, be the same as the entry cap, then uh, you should run. <laughs> but um, yeah. take that with a grain of salt. But um, yeah, it's just being conservative and, and, and just not looking through a crystal ball and trying to say, hey, like... Everything's going to be perfect. Well, you know, things can change. So we, we really just need to be looking conservatively and, and make sure we can still hit our returns, um, even in a challenging time where rent doesn't grow as expected or or um, occupancy doesn't stay at the rates that uh, you know we've been seeing in the last number of years. So, um, yeah, no, that's great. So I want to ask you this and I, I think I already know the answer, but um, I think it's interesting. How did you how did you learn to underwrite deals? Like uh, you're a younger guy, uh, how did you become so affluent in 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 learning how to underwrite these deals and 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 you know build your own proprietary model? Like how did that happen?
1: Yeah, it was really uh, I guess out of necessity and just trial and and working at it. So early on, as I started looking at deals, my initial thought was, well, hey, I'm sure there's already a good model that exists out there. I'll just go on Google and search for it and then I'll download it and I'm done. Save myself a lot of time. And uh, my dad said, no, you're not going to do that. You're going to build the best one. (laughs) And I thought he was crazy. I thought, why would I recreate the wheel? I'm going to waste so much time. I could just get one and then be done with it. And um, I don't even think he knew how helpful it would be for me to embark on that journey, but I started doing it and I, you know, built one from scratch and it was horrible. And then I, edited it. And, and then I downloaded every model I could find and started, you know, analyzing and tearing apart, breaking down all the models that anybody would send me and try to learn from each one and take the best pieces from each one. And I'd say, oh, I'm so jealous of this model. I, I, I need that function. And I would just keep incorporating, you know, the best pieces until I got to a pretty nice working model. And then from there, we, we kind of established that and then make some smaller edits over time and some still bigger overhauls. I actually had a big overhaul just um, in December where I locked myself in a conference room for a few days straight and just spent 12 hours a day uh, kind of, you know, rebuilding some things. So uh, it's, it's been a great experience because like I mentioned earlier, unless you've built it, you don't really know how it works. So it's great for me that I can confidently you know, understand how each, uh, you know, formula and different, you know, assumption work in the model. So, uh, you know, that's been very valuable to, you know, trust the underwriting, learn more about the business. And um, yeah, it's been a great, it's been a great experience
0: learning and building on it. Yeah, no, that's awesome. I mean, sounds like you just learned the business so much better by just going through that process and getting the repetitions and really, you know, thinking through it. So that's really awesome and inspiring for others out there as well. So um, maybe, uh, maybe others might be inspired to go out and build their own model. Well, we'll see if they can handle the, the 12 hours, days like you mentioned. But, um, you know, I, I want to be respectful of your time here and, uh, you know, wrap up this conversation. Um, but what, you know, I want to take it into our final four questions where you just give short to the point answers. So what is your favorite real estate or business book?
1: investing in real estate private equity by it's a pseudonym because the real person that wrote it is Paul Caseberg. Um, but the pseudonym I think is Sean something, but if you just Amazon it, it's a good one.
0: All right. I'll have to check that one out. What is one thing you wish you knew when you got started in real estate investing? Wow.
1: Hmm. I would say there's a lot more to it and, um, you know, partners, mentors. All right, here you go. So what's a daily habit that helps you be successful? Um, read, uh, you know, read everything you see and uh, network.
0: Awesome, Um, so what do you do for fun when you're not uh, crunching numbers in your models? Uh, working out, reading, um, golf. Awesome, I love reading as well. So last one here. Um, wrapped up all our questions, but I want to give you a chance to uh, share how, how can our listeners get in touch with you?
1: Yeah. If you're looking to embark on that model, or that sounds horrible and you just want mine, you know, feel free to reach out to me directly at Rob, R-O-B at LoneStarCapGroup.com. Uh, you can check us out at LoneStarCapGroup.com, just the website. Um, you know, drop your email there on, on the website and you'll get an email with a lot of content, including my underwriting model package, which includes some how to videos, um, you know, obviously the underwriting model with some more tutorial type stuff. Um, so there's a lot of good resources there.
0: Awesome. No, that's a a lot of value. And it sounds like you put a lot of hours into that. So um, I think uh, I I might even reach out to you about that. That sounds great. Um, But uh, well, it was really great to have you on the show today, Rob. Um, Really appreciate you sharing your knowledge and and adding value to our listeners. So thanks again. And uh, hopefully we can talk to you again soon. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks. Take care. If you want to get in touch with me directly to learn more about real estate or to see all of the available podcast episodes and show notes, visit my website, marcuscron.com. Thanks for listening to the episode. If you enjoy the show, make sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. If you enjoy the podcast, or if it provides value in any way, make sure to leave a five-star review. This helps the show attract top quality guests who will be able to provide even more insight into how you can build wealth through real estate. Talk to you next time.